There's a difference between thinking about the work and dreaming about the work and talking about the work and telling everybody else that you're going to do the work and actually doing the work. Today, we are going to talk about dopamine. It's ability to promote motivational drive, to promote wanting something. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Not so much, Steve. Looking forward to uh, being here today and having a conversation on uh, what I like to call cheap dopamine, even though as we get into the conversation, we'll see that that's uh, an oversimplification. But uh, yeah, how are you? I'm great. You're telling me we're going to get our dopamine fix, man. I'm ready to play the slots. That's what it's all about. So all all is good over here, ready to play some slots and um, get my fix. But if you don't just want the cheap dopamine hit and you want something that is lasting and sustaining, well, you can head on over to our books, my latest do Hard Things, Brad's latest, The Practice of Groundedness, to get stuff that is going to nourish you intellectually, emotionally, and psychologically for a long time. And if you feel like these conversations provide lasting nourishment, the best way you can support us there is head on over to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash growth equation, and you'll get all sorts of cool things like a copy of our next book when it comes out, signed. So check it out. All right. I like how you did that there, Steve. Well done. So I said that cheap dopamine is an oversimplification, and let's just start there. So dopamine is like the neurochemical of the day. Everybody wants to talk about dopamine. And Neither of us are neuroscientists, but both of us have done a fair amount of research and reporting on how the brain works. And today, we are going to talk about dopamine in terms of its ability to promote motivational drive, to promote wanting something. It is the neurochemical of wanting, of pursuit, of craving, of addiction. Now, Truly, so many other mechanisms are at play in wanting, in craving, in addiction, and all these things. The brain is so freaking complex. Consciousness is the hard problem for a reason. It's like the one scientific frontier that nobody has figured out. So I wanted to start with the disclaimer that when we zero in on this one neurochemical, there are all sorts of other things at play. And we know that dopamine is associated with all those things that I mentioned. The second thing that I'll say is dopamine does a lot of other things. Dopamine is extremely important for messages from our brain to travel to other parts of our body so that we can act. The class of drugs, for example, that is used in treating neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's acts particularly on dopamine. Why? Because Parkinson's in part is a loss of the body's ability to use dopamine to produce action, to produce motivation for our nervous systems to work properly. 
So when we talk about dopamine in today's conversation, again, we're simplifying, but we're also staying thematically correct. So with that, let me define cheap dopamine. Cheap dopamine is getting a feeling of excitement, of arousal, of energy by talking about something, by thinking about something, by watching videos about something, by tweeting about something. All of these acts that we do that give us that feeling of like, oh, I'm doing something or I'm going to do something or isn't this going to be great? And it gets us really energized, which is very different than actually doing the thing. And the fascinating paradox is doing the thing never feels as good as talking about it or thinking about it or dreaming about it. Why? Again, dopamine is the neurochemical of wanting, not of liking. Satisfaction is very, very different than craving. And satisfaction looks a lot different in the brain. So I have observed that particularly with technology, which is something that we're going to be talking about also in the next couple of episodes, it's very easy to get into this cycle where we feel really energized and we feel really excited and we feel really motivated, but we're not actually doing anything meaningful. Yeah, I love, as I always do, to go to the exercise route to explain this, because this is, this is what I do, right? The cheap way of getting dopamine is thinking about, oh, I'm going to start this program and this is so excited and like, let's get going. I'm going to join this group or this gym or this CrossFit program. And you get energized from like thinking about that. Why? Because dopamine is the seeking desire hormone, as Brad just outlined there. And it just gets us jazzed for the pursuit of the thing. But that lasting satisfaction is when you do the work and you finish the workout and you're kind of tired and exhausted and to some degree, but you have that feeling of like, oh man, like not the high, not I'm energized to do something, but that lasting deep satisfaction. And there's act not to get neurochemically crazy here, but like generally you see that from some of the endorphins, endocannabinoids, opioid system, which causes us to have this like calm security connect feeling versus the dopamine, which is like the energized, you know, feeling the exploring feeling. And I think what, 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 what Brad is getting at here is that it's really easy to get the cheap dopamine and then fool yourself into thinking that you're productive or fool yourself into thinking that you're making progress. But what we really need is to accompany or bound and use the the dopamine to maybe get us pushed to start, but then work towards that deeper inner satisfaction that allows us to kind of do the work consistently over the long time. And to pay attention to how good that deeper satisfaction feels. So something that um, I've seen in myself, I've seen it in the clients that I work with, and I've seen it in my friend group and really pretty broadly and ubiquitously I hear about this is when you spend a lot of time during a day or a week in that cheap dopamine cycle. 
So maybe you're posting on social media. Maybe you're not on social media at all, but you've got these to-do lists and you're just like writing to-do lists and making new to-do lists and you're taking care of like the smallest things. Uh, Maybe in a traditional workplace setting, you're like cranking through your inbox and you're staying really on top of responding to everything. So you're doing like these activating things that uh, foreshadow something to come in the future that you can get excited about and you can want. And at the end of those days, most people, myself included, we don't really feel satisfied. We don't feel like we've been productive. Um, I talk to a lot of my coaching clients with kids and they're like, you know, I, I feel myself being less patient with my kids at the end of those days because I feel like I still need to work. Like I didn't really do anything. Now contrast that with the feeling from when you actually sit down in an undistracted state and you work on something and you give it your all for one to three hours or you have a really deep, meaningful conversation with someone. Or in Steve's example, instead of just like talking about the workout plan, you've actually been doing it for two weeks. And it's like the afterglow of having a great workout or writing an op-ed or creating the pitch deck or prepping for a meeting, you name it. That is a very different feeling than that excitement, that energy of wanting. And it's so important to separate these two things because in the moment, the wanting is always going to be more powerful. But at the end of the day, the feeling of satisfaction, I think, is the one that leaves us feeling better and more fulfilled and and more nourished. Um, The other quick example that I'll say that, you know, we're pointing at this truth from all these different angles that hopefully resonates is someone once told me that writing is a lot like running. Because everybody likes talking about running in their marathon. And everyone likes talking about writing in the articles they're going to write or the books they're going to write. Everybody loves having run at the end of their workout. And everyone loves having written, producing a piece and being done with it. Nobody actually likes running or writing. And I think that that is the jump that so many people need to make in various areas of their life. We can like the thing. We can like talking about it. We can like that feeling of energy, but actually getting started on the thing is often kind of a letdown. It's not as exciting as thinking or dreaming or tweeting about it. We actually got to do the freaking thing. But once we've done that thing, we get really satisfied and you pay attention to that satisfaction and eventually you actually start to like to do the thing itself. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I remember the, I think I've told this story before, but in fifth grade, um, you know, I almost broke our elementary school school record, just missed it in the mile by a couple seconds. Our PE teacher asked, hey, do you want to give it a go in a couple weeks? And I'm like, sure, I'll get my name on the board. So I go home, tell my dad, he's like, why don't you go train? I go to the track and train for one day and say, this sucks. Running sucks. I don't want to do this. It's not fun. So I didn't take an attempt at the elementary school record. But Years later, I found running to be enjoyable because I spent time doing it and spent time falling and kind of love with it and, uh, and enjoying this kind of deeper satisfaction around it. And, and I tell that story because I think often we fool ourselves. It's kind of what we wrote about in The Passion Paradox to a degree, our least read book, but check it out. Um, where <laughs> we talked about how we over-index on the initial feeling 
and under-index on like the long-term feeling. So we un- over-index on things that like, you know, in the passion sense, make us feel passionate and like, you know, the uh, initial feelings of excitement when we, you know, start to date someone else and think we're falling in love. But we under-index on that like long-term love that is like, maybe not quite as exciting, but has this deep trust and, you know, uh, expansion, expansive quality to it. And I think the other thing about this, so I'm thinking this topic through, is that one of the reasons this is so important now is because our modern society over overemphasizes or allows for cheap dopamine. It's almost like the processed food problem in diet. It's easy For to sure. get easy to get the quick and easy energy. Process, quick, easy, tastes good, available, don't have to spend much time cooking. Leaves you feeling pretty good initially. But over time it it you know harms us essentially. Well now we have data. Like it ultra processed food harms us. I think it's the same when we look at the cheap dopamine phenomenon is it's a lot easier tweeting about the workout. It's a lot easier posting a video about, you know, having your shoes lined up or, or you know, you lifting one weight and then going home, <laughs> whatever it is, versus actually sitting down and doing the thing and kind of falling in love with that process. Yeah, it's ultra processed content, ultra processed motivation, ultra processed hype speech, ultra processed dreaming. And I think that this comes down to um, just knowing this about yourself and knowing that it's part of human nature and not judging it, but really being aware when you are getting caught in a cycle of doing things that are periphery to the work or to the main thing you want to do instead of the main thing. So, you know, as I like to put it in impiphious terms as I can is, like there's a difference between thinking about the work and dreaming about the work and talking about the work and um, telling everybody else that you're going to do the work and actually doing the work. There is a difference between getting really excited about falling in love versus being in a long-term relationship. There is a difference between getting the promotion or thinking about when you're going to get the promotion and actually doing the hard work that the job entails. And it's human nature to get caught up in the cheap dopamine, the thinking about it, the getting excited for it. And it's just about realizing when you're in those traps and then getting yourself out of them by coming back to the thing itself. Last thing I'll say to be really explicit in case there are any neuroscience people out here, we need the dopamine. Like Parkinson's disease, it's not available and it's a degenerative, debilitating disease. Like we need dopamine to motivate us to take the smallest actions. So it's not that thinking, dreaming, and talking about things are bad. That helps us to get motivated. It's that when we get caught up doing that and we mistake doing that or we overshoot the target or we do that at the expense of the thing itself, that's when it becomes problematic. Yeah, and the way I like to frame it to to clients I work with is if you think about, dream about, like do all that stuff over and over again, it's almost like you convince your brain like, oh, we've already done it, you know? And your brain goes, okay, well, like we've done it. Like we're good. We don't have to, we've gotten everything out of it that we need. We don't have to actually do the freaking work. It's almost like the, uh, 
it's not quite this, but I think the analogy works. It's the checklist phenomenon where you put all your easy stuff first to make it feel like you're making progress. And you're like, oh, look at all these things I did. And and you put the actual hard things that you need to make progress at the bottom of the list and they never get done. So you create the appearance of progress without actually having meaningful progress. And what we're trying to say here is like the dopamine matters. Like it's it's there. It's there in everything. We can't, you know, I know dopamine fasts are trending, but you can never fast from dopamine. It's always there in our environment, even if we put away our phones and computers and other things. It's just part of being human, right? And having that important neurochemical. But <laughs> what we have to do is, you know, balance out, we'll call that seeking desire, um, you know, system that is always on, always activated, and and has an environment ripe with that, we have to balance that out with the kind of satisfaction, calm, connect, you know, security system. And we tend to underdo that part and overdo the seeking desire system. So I like to look at it as how do I turn up the knob of that satisfaction so that I remember like, oh yeah, this doing these workouts week after week, month after month, like it doesn't leave this excitement, but it leaves this kind of deeply set deep satisfaction writing a book. Like doesn't often when you're done, you don't feel excited, but you look back and you have this deep satisfaction of putting hard work into creating something that is, you know, hopefully new, exciting and are going to help somebody. And the last thing that I'll say on this topic that I think is important is when you look at addiction, you actually get the exact opposite result. And that's worth paying attention to because that's what can help somebody get out of an addictive cycle or at least be a step towards getting out of an addictive cycle, which is at the end of the thing, you don't feel satisfied or fulfilled. You feel kind of like, empty or hollow or like, man, I really needed that thing, but I just did it. And like, now what? So you often see in people that struggle with addiction, one of our, both of our favorite books actually is the biology of desire by, is it Mark Lewis? Uh, Steve, why don't you do a quick fact check while I go here, but I think it's Mark Lewis, but, um, a brilliant addiction and desire researcher who basically frames addiction is um, partially a learning disorder, a malfunction of learning where we get so stuck on these things that even when we're done doing them, we, we, we feel bad. Like we don't want to have done them. So people think that an addict actually enjoys getting high or enjoys being drunk or enjoys the porn, whatever it is. But actually there's a lot more enjoyment in the lead up to the thing, like the chase and that initial joint or the initial flick of the porn screen, whatever it is. But then after the act, people don't feel satisfied. They don't feel fulfilled. They, they tend to feel really empty. And what makes addiction so freaking hard is that that initial jolt is so strong that people come back for more. And I think that, that that that's like a really interesting, I guess, contrast to doing the work that is meaningful. You'll feel good and fulfilled and satisfied after. In an addictive cycle, the same dopamine leads you to do it. But when you're done with the thing, you actually don't feel good. 
And dopamine's really freaking powerful. And in addiction, you come back and you do it again and again and again. That's literally the definition of addiction is repeated behavior despite negative consequences because that dopamine is so strong. Yeah, it is Mark Lewis. So you're correct. One of our favorite books, The Biology of Desire, worth a read if you haven't yet. Yeah, I don't think I have anything to add to it. Like to me, it's it's accepting the reality of like, you know, dopamine is a thing. It's not it's not bad necessarily. It's just a thing that causes you to seek, desire, explore. It's the thing that allowed us way back on the savannas to know that hey, we need to go find food. Like, give us a hit of dopamine so we explore our environment so we can find something that eventually satisfies this, um, you know, need we have for hunger, food, etc. Um, that dopamine can point us in the direction of pursuing good things or things that aren't so good or healthy for us. And I think the, the takeaway for me is, you know, we have lots of things in our environment that will push that button or pull that lever. That's fine. Try to direct them in good spots. But at the same point, turn up the dial on that content you know, self-satisfaction lever. And that also means like sit with that experience, right? Sit with that experience of being satisfied after a workout. Reflect back on the progress you've made. You know, sit with that experience of having a deep and meaningful conversation with someone else instead of just texting them and, you know, getting a small hit of dopamine. I'm like, oh, like I'm now in a texting conversation, like go for the deep satisfaction instead of the superficial. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll add in case, and I know that we've got a lot of physicians and physician researchers here. So my, my, my brother is a neurologist and something that we talk about often is because there are all these sources of, um, of like dopamine production that Steve mentioned, and we know that Parkinson's in particular is largely characterized by a loss. I think the number is 80% of dopamine producing cells in the brain. So like the, the dopamine system in your brain kind of fries out. And that's why people that suffer from Parkinson's have Parkinsonian um, tremors and eventually lose the ability to move. It's a really terrible disease. To Steve's point, like you don't want to go dopamine fasting. Dopamine fasting looks like neurodegeneration. It's not good. However, it'd be really curious to see if there's going to be an increase in these sort of diseases and disorders over time, because like is modern society just frying our dopamine receptors. Now that's a very bio plausible, uh, hypothesis that has not been tested and only time will tell. And neuroscience and the brain is complex. There's a million things that go into these, uh, sort of disorders. But I do wonder if, um, if, if we'll see any kind of change and Parkinson's and Parkinson-like diseases because we are in such a dopamine-rich environment that just wasn't the case. As exciting as watching the news or getting the newspaper, you know, from the days of the Wells Fargo wagon come into town, it's not scrolling on your phone or the Amazon Prime delivery truck. Like, this stuff is just all over, and it is changing our brain. And it will be interesting to see what the results are over time. Yeah, that's one for the speculation uh, place, but I think there is. I mean, it's it's obvious, kind of like, we'll go back to the food analogy. We have now seen the results of our food environment shifting and changing, and they aren't 
too pretty. Um, will we have something similar to our, you know, our kind of brain environment essentially changing? I think we're seeing that to a degree, maybe not in the dopamine world, but in something that also is, you know, hormonal and neurotransmitter related, which is our feeling and sense of connection as well is because more and more of our world is virtual online, not in person. We're seeing, we're starting to see, especially among young people, but rates of depression and mental health issues going up uh, partially because of that lack of real world connection and experience. So I, I think we will see something. I don't know if it'll be as extreme as frying our dopamine, but you know, there's always consequences to um, big changes. And we operate within the system and we're not anarchists here. We sell books on a market. We often send people to Amazon more often than we should. We coach people who operate in the capitalist system. So we're not saying burn the whole thing down. However, we do try to do our small part to help people exist in it better and ideally to change it. And I can't help but make kind of a burn the whole thing down remark, maybe in conclusion, which is whether it's ultra processed foods or ultra processed content, it's ultimately just feeding some kind of profit motive. Like why are ultra processed foods a thing? Because we can't stop eating them and they're really cheap to make. And in the food industry, the thing that drives profit is consumers purchasing and eating food and not being satisfied and eating more food and feeling like they need more and more and more. And in the attention economy, which is a topic we talk a lot about, who's producing the ultra-processed content? Well, on social media, we all are. But ultimately, these platforms have a really vested interest in it because it tastes good. It never leaves us fulfilled. We always want to come back for more. And as a result, they get our eyeballs and attention, which then they can sell to advertisers in or mine our user behavior and sell our data. So always follow the money. And in this case, the money is supporting these things that are bad for our bodies and bad for our brains. And hopefully um, this episode has made us all a little bit more aware of it. And we can do what we can to, to push against the grain and within ourselves and our families and our friends and our communities, try to, 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 like I said, to swim upstream, to go against the grain, whatever metaphor you want. And then for those of us that have the motivation to do so, to try to change things for the better. So listen to podcasts, read our books, and then if you want, check us out on social media, but you'd be fine without the latter and your brain would probably be better for it. 